Welcome to the Advanced Persistent Security Podcast, where we discuss the world of IT and cybersecurity. Don't be left in the dark about what's going on in the world around you. Here is your host, Joe Gray. Welcome to the Advanced Persistent Security Podcast. I'm Joe Gray. With me this evening is Brian Ventura. Brian is a security architect, an information security architect, that is. Uh, He's in the Pacific Northwest region. He is a SANS instructor uh, teaching the critical security controls class. How's it going, Brian? It's going well. Nice to talk to you. Likewise. Uh, So fill in any blanks uh, in terms of uh, what I've uh, laid out in terms of your uh, biography, and uh, then we'll get started. Great. Okay. Well, I've been in information technology for... Oh, 23 plus years, and I've been I've done a lot of system administration, Unix admin, Windows admin, and throughout my career I did a lot of security related things, but never thought of them as a security role. So I managed firewalls and access control, and and played with encryption solutions, uh, and then recently over the last few years I've formally taken on a security role as an architect and started uh, working with the critical security controls. And that led me to SANS, where I signed up to be one of their instructors. And I've been teaching for about a year and a half, almost two years now, for SANS. Uh, I started with the CISSP course, and then I moved into the critical security controls. I taught that through, they have two different courses, a five-day course and a two-day course. And I've taught that through this year eight times, I think. And I have two more set up for February. I'll be teaching in Pittsburgh. Uh, I think that one's the two-day version. It's SEC 440. And then I'll also be teaching in Seattle in in the beginning of February. And that is the five-day course, which is SEC 566. Awesome. And I will have links to all this in the show notes. So if you're in the Pittsburgh or Seattle areas, and you are interested in taking these courses, definitely sign up to uh, take it. uh, And most certainly uh, cite Brian as your source as well. Awesome. So um, normally at this point we would kind of talk about the news. And we, we spitballed whether we wanted to talk about Kim Kardashian or Yahoo, and we kind of felt that both of them were really played out. So instead, we're going to take a completely different format, and we're going to talk about the month of October. October being two significant months. First being Breast Cancer Awareness Month, and secondly, what we're going to talk about is Cybersecurity Awareness Month. So um, tell us a little bit about it uh, from your perspective, Brian. So the National Cybersecurity Awareness Month, uh, they have got a hashtag for Twitter, which I think is CyberSafe, and they also have a number of activities, including local events in different areas. Uh, Their main pages are the staysafeonline.org, or they have their stopthinkconnect.org, which is their branding to try to give people an idea of how to interact with the Internet, stop and think about what, where you're going on the Internet, what kind of information you're um, about to click on or reading, and determine whether it's, it's what you want to do, and then go ahead and connect in a responsible manner. And that's, that's a really kind of a cool catchphrase, and hopefully will be something that 
that takes on. But they've got lots of different scenarios and what's going on in uh, the the awareness world. They've got Lock Down Your Computer, which is actually a White House uh, initiative. Uh, so they've got lots of different uh, materials that people can look at and send out in their environments. So at my main organization that I work for full-time, I, I sent out an email today on some of the basics, and then I'll follow up uh, next week with an in-person meeting with some of the stakeholders where I'll talk about the national cybersecurity awareness, and then I'll follow up with a, a final email at the end of the month uh, to wrap things up. But giving people the idea, we'll, we'll look at some of their posters and we'll post some of their posters um, on around our um, office space. And that's that's an honestly, uh, in my opinion, that's a great approach because you're reinforcing it in person, you're enforcing it via email, you're giving the the posters. Basically, you're you're touching on every single avenue and medium aside from maybe computer-based training and. You know that should be a recurring annual thing anyway. Yeah, um, we have that, but but that that one's more compliance side of things, and they, like you said, that yearly thing. This is really just to kind of bring it in out out on and have people thinking about it out of cycle. Um, by the way, there are different themes for each week. So October third through seventh was everyday steps towards online safety with Stop Think Connect. This week, being October 10th through 14th, is the cyber from the break room to the boardroom. And then the third week is recognizing and combating cybercrime. The fourth week is our continuously connected lives. What's your aptitude with APP, meaning the applications? And the last week only gets one day, but they're, they're talking about critical infrastructure, so building resilient uh, critical Resilience and critical infrastructure is the fifth week. Awesome. This being a long month. Exactly. And from my perspective, you know, I've tried to run programs similar to this outside the month of October. Uh, I called it the security thought of the month, and basically I took an idea, and I would just convey via email uh, each week an idea to the uh, my, my peers, and then sometimes I would run tests like phishing tests at the end of the month. Sometimes I wouldn't. And I found that October is a great month. And, you know, Mr. Robot is out of season now. So that being an awareness tool is kind of down the drain, except for those people who actually want to catch up on it. And then, you know, we really need to shift gears in October and December because realistically we're not going to be doing a whole lot of heavy lifting in terms of tech. But that's a great time to have the e-commerce and online safety discussions, as well as physical security and scams. Because, yeah. you know, October, November and December being the holiday shopping season, uh, as people become more active in their spending, criminals obviously are going to become more aggressive in their tactics. Yes, that's definitely true. And that's starting just next month with, with the Christmas season and all that. So. Exactly. Lots of, of e-commerce. It's it's a really good time to get that conversation started. So anyone that's listening, if you run an awareness program or you have that influence of, uh, with your employer or your organization, by all means, get that conversation started for the month of October and the month of December. It's more than just Christmas trees and turkeys. Yeah. Um, 
I'm going to, I'm going to quote um, a couple of the security awareness posters that uh, Advanced Persistent Security had made before we shifted over to the pure blog and podcast offerings. Uh, at one point, we were actually looking at selling awareness programs, and we had two of them that were notably made. One of them said, uh, don't get scared by a cyber attack, and uh, the one for November said, don't be a turkey, don't fall victim to cyber theft, essentially. Okay. So um, it's definitely things to look at. Yeah. So um, and before we- you get... Along those lines, along those lines of awareness, um, one of the things that we've done is our program is this month we're doing something special with sending more emails and things like that. But we actually have a program where we meet once a month with our business line stakeholders. It's our customer stakeholder group for IT. And they talk about all the information technology things, projects that we have going on. We get information security put into there for a 10-minute talk just to say this is what we're thinking about this month. And each month we have a different subject. We also do lunch and learns where we have 20 minutes of content that we'll uh, present and then we'll have the remaining 40 minutes for people to just ask questions. So we've done that on phishing and we've done that on ransomware and we always get really lively conversations afterwards with people asking, okay, my grandmother got this thing and what do I do about it and how can I protect myself at home? So they're really thinking about security and we're helping them in their homes, which then translates to them bringing that that awareness and uh, skills potentially to the office and helping us out at the office as as well. So those are a couple different things that we do. Uh, we also do have posters that we get. We get them from uh, the Center for Internet Security because we're members. Uh, but they're just generic uh, information security awareness posters that we put up around the office so that people hopefully are thinking about those things as they go through their days. Awesome. So uh, let's go ahead and shift gears. Uh, our topic today is going to be the what I call the artist formerly known as the SANS Top 20. Yeah, the critical security controls. Which ironically fall under the Center for Internet Security, CIS. Uh, Before we get really hot and heavy into the security controls, tell us what the the critical security controls are and what, what are they trying to attain? Yeah, so the critical security controls have an interesting history and they they actually start with the NSA doing internal audits of different government agencies and specifically doing penetration tests and being able to break in and those agencies coming back to the NSA and saying, that's great that you can break in and you showed us some cool stuff, but give me the cheat sheet on how I can protect myself so that you don't succeed next time. And that was one of the impetus of the critical security controls within the the U.S. side of things. On the other side of of things, other organizations were thinking the same thing. So Australia has their top 35 uh, controls that match up really closely. But the goal of all these control ideas is to get a prioritized approach to risk on the Internet. So each of us are supposed to do our risk assessment within our own organizations and say these are high-risk areas and those are low-risk areas, and therefore I should do some controls over here and not over there and have different controls for this other thing, and we, we magically know what we're supposed to be doing. The challenges are that we have so much 
data and it's so diverse and we don't really understand necessarily every business process that we have that it's difficult for us to come up with the perfect controls for each area and so there are gaps left on the table. The critical security controls say, hey, let's look at all the breaches that have happened in history and let's determine what we could have done retrospectively if we were in those organizations at that time to overcome those breaches. So you think about all the different breaches that we've heard through the news and they, and they say, well, if we would have done this, we would, they wouldn't have got in. If we would have done that, we, they wouldn't have got in. And this is a com compilation of the top 20 of those control families that if you did these in this order of 20, if you had nothing before this and you did these 20, you're going to be able to stop most of the breaches that are out there. And the Australian uh, Signals Directorate actually says if you implement the top five controls, it's actually their top four, but it's our top five in the critical security controls. So if you implement the top five critical controls, you could stop more than 85% of all the breaches that have happened up to date is their claim. Wow, that's that's pretty amazing. But honestly, from a common sense perspective, it makes a lot of sense. So yeah. that's, that's yeah, kind when of the we, scarier part. When we start part. talking about the controls, you'll start to understand that, wow, it does kind of make sense to be in this order. Some organizations will say, well, wait a minute, I already have control three, um, so I'm already strong there, so I'm going to focus on control five or six or seven. So they may get a little bit out of order in their focus because of what controls they already have. But in general, we want to stick to this order and go through them in this, uh, this fashion to get the best security for our organization. Something that the critical security controls don't have, when we talk about security frameworks, uh, security frameworks also have their governance side of things where you have your data classification and you have your authorization to operate your security program and your policies. Um, those types of things are pulled out of the critical security controls. The critical security controls are focused on technical solutions that you can implement to raise the bar and they assume that you will have the corresponding governance to make that happen. So for instance, if we're looking at data protection, we're going to need to know what kind of data we have. So we're going to need a data classification. We don't, the critical security controls won't say you need exactly a data classification. What they'll say is you need to have rules to protect your data um, and it assumes that you know which data you're trying to to protect at what level. And, you know, this SANS Top 20 is not the only list of, of this sort, correct? That's correct. Yeah, there's a few others that have done similar work. And I mentioned the Australian Signals Directorate Top 35. Uh, theirs is, I believe, built into law for federal governments inside of Australia. Uh, they have a, a streamlined version of this, the 35 controls. But then there's also a couple other organizations that do something similar that is maybe not exactly what the critical security controls do, but they, it's still important to talk about and, and have in mind. And a couple examples of that is OWASP has their uh, top 10 uh, programming errors or web programming errors. And so if you're in software development, you really want to focus on those top 10. They're the things like SQL injection and cross-site scripting that we always see as the way people get in or often see the way that people get into breach 
um, organizations. So all OWASP outlines them, and the, and the interesting thing is the top 10 hasn't changed significantly over the years, which shows that we're not doing very well at protecting from these things. Uh, and then the Cloud uh, Security Alliance also has their treacherous 12 that they've come out with, which is going to focus on the cloud solutions and what things you can do about cloud solutions that might be different than the critical security controls don't have an assumption of your data is in this specific type of format like cloud, someone else's computer. So, so also a good resource to use when thinking about how to build controls and protect your assets. Exactly. And, you know, to add on to the um, OWASP Top 10 and uh, kind of go back to the podcast that I did with Frank Rietta, there's also another one that's actually the um, ASVS, which is the Application Security Verification Standard, which is a far more in-depth version of the top 10. It's actually endorsed by Gary McGraw from Sigital, you know, the, one of the big uh, AppSec companies out there. And, you know, when you look at the, the validation standard, that's, that's going to be pretty significant in terms of you're looking to validate all of these controls. And it gets very granular um, where the top 10 is quite, kind of not as thorough as the meat and potatoes of the actual 20 security controls, the ASVS actually gets a little bit more verbose, uh, almost too far in the weeds. Um, but a really good read for those software developers that are building solutions, because if they don't build the solutions, then the standard IT operations has to protect against those by applying patches and scanning for vulnerabilities. So if the developers can fix some of these things before they, they build their code, we're all in a better place. So pretty awesome that they have it out there. Exactly. And, you know, I would be remiss if we're talking application security and didn't mention uh, Gary McGraw's books. You know, he, he's kind of like the godfather of application security. So any any budding software engineer or developer should probably go ahead and just read his books anyway. I'll put a link to them in the show notes. But... You know, that's just something worth looking at. And, and you know, uh, to say my piece with the uh, Cloud Security Alliance Treacherous 12, it actually used to be the Notorious 9, but as the cloud has evolved, it's, you know, grown. I, I could foresee in the next few years it actually becoming the Frightful 15 or something along <laughs> those lines. Yeah. So, but everybody has a list, and, you know, there's nothing wrong with the list. The lists don't compete. They just address different areas yeah, and complement each other. Exactly. So with that being said, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to dive into the 20 security controls. Stay tuned. Are you looking for a place to advertise to the unique audience of IT security professionals and enthusiasts? Look no further. Advanced Persistent Security is seeking sponsors. This slot could be yours. Contact sales at advancedpersistentsecurity.net for more information. And we're back. Thank you for sticking out through the break. Uh, with me is Brian Ventura. We're talking about the Center for Internet Security, Critical Security Controls, the artist formerly known as the SANS Top 20. We've kind of done a cross-comparison with some of the other lists, such as Australia's uh, list of 35, the Cloud Security Alliance Treacherous 12, OWASP Top 10 and the Application Security uh, Validation Standard. 
with that being said, we're going to kind of we're not going to go deep into the controls. That we'll, we'll save that for a different episode. But we're going to give a high level of all of the controls with specific focus on the first five. So to go ahead and get started, control number one is the inventory of authorized and unauthorized devices. The floor is yours, Brian. All right. So in this control, we're looking at knowing what systems are on our network. So it's a very basic starting point of what's on our network, what do we have? And most organizations will say, well, of course, I have all my workstations, I have my servers, I have my network switches. And they might stop there. They might not even talk about the network side because they're not, you're talking to the people that just work on systems. But what we've recognized in the organizations that I've worked in, and I think most organizations will start seeing this, is that on our network we have a ton of other things than just Windows workstations or Linux workstations and Windows and Linux servers or pick your flavor of operating system. But what we have more than just those devices. We have mobile devices now, those iPhones and those Androids, those tablets. Those things are on the network. But we also have a smart TV in our conference room instead of a monitor because it was bigger and cheaper. And maybe someone plugged that in because they want to get to Internet content. So now we have a smart TV on. And then we have cameras on, on our network. And we have printers on our network. And we have all these devices that are going to get lumped into IoT or Internet of Things uh, that we hadn't thought about. And so critical control one comes back to that and says, let's go find everything on our network. Let's, do, let's have a specific system for how we're going to find the things. And then the last part of it is we're going to actually lock down our network and say that only things that we authorize are going to be allowed on our network. So going through the first five controls, I'll go through some of the sub-controls because they're going to be important. And then as we get through, get further, I might summarize them a little bit more. But for control one, we're going to deploy an asset inventory discovery tool. We want this to be automated. We want something that's going to go out and scan all our IP addresses and tell us about those new machines. We're going to match that up against an inventory database that we have through some kind of management tool that's managing our workstations and our switches and our servers. We're going to look at our DHCP because it's a great source of information about what things are on our network. We're going to make sure that all of our, when we buy things, our acquisition process has a way to update our inventory system automatically so that we get that before it actually gets plugged into the network so it's authorized before it even gets plugged into the network. And then we're going to really want a really robust asset inventory system that will have all the ties into all these devices and have details about them, including who owns them. So which business line has them, which uh, department, what building, what floor maybe. And that type of information will become powerful as we move through the controls and we have to report risk to other organizations. And probably a good time to step back real quick and talk about risk. With the critical security controls and with any information security program, we're, we're kind of custodians of 
the data. And so we're, we're recommending solutions like the critical security controls, like getting an inventory of all of our systems, but we can't enforce that uh, ourselves. We have to get the business lines to buy in and say, it's important to do good security things on my data. And so there are times when our organization may be at odds with us where they don't agree we should do a control. So with the critical security controls or any kind of a control framework that you use, what we're saying here is these are the good things we should do, and then let's report on how well we're doing. So do we have an automated tool? Do we, are we checking DHCP? Do we have a really robust inventory system for all of our computers and devices? And then where we have those gaps, we report that back to management and they, they get to make a risk-based decision on that report. And we might, it might be useful to say, hey, the accounting department is doing an awesome job, but marketing, you're a mess. And then marketing gets to make a decision that they don't want to be left behind, that they're adding too much risk, and so they're going to pay into the system and have these controls work on their systems. So that's an idea. Exactly. And, you know, just to step in for just a moment, uh, you hit on something that I consider absolutely critical with this, uh, specifically with uh, subcontrol 1.4, which you know is talking about the asset inventory, you mentioned who owns the device, and I find that especially useful and uh, insightful to have it there because too often you have these systems and nobody wants to take ownership of them, but the second that IT or security wants to make a decision about them, somebody automatically takes that ownership. So, you know, that definitely creates a certain level of responsibility that wouldn't exist otherwise. And by having this, you know, management's ear with it, that, that can actually help you in later controls in terms of accountability. Yeah, that's exactly what we're looking for. So when we find out that there's the next version of Heartbleed that's just critical and it hits hits us really hard, we can tell each business line that they either have a problem or don't have a problem because of what we've done with our scans. So, yeah. Exactly. And understanding the function and the ownership of the – understanding the ownership can help you better understand the function. And, yeah, you know, my, my, my two favorite departments to pick on would be HR and accounting because – one deals with financial information, the other deals with PII, which are both highly uh, sought-after pieces of information for attackers. And you know, you oftentimes they actually have some of the most lax security when they probably should have some of the stronger security for that reason. You know, look at the infection vector that HR deals with in terms of having to open resumes. They do it on a regular workstation on the same network uh, that accounting is on. Are you that, saying that attachments might have malicious content? Is that what I heard? Anyone who, by the time this podcast goes live, anyone who attended my talk at Georgia Gwinnett College on October 12th would have seen the demonstration using Social Engineer Toolkit to actually create some pretty nasty uh, PDF files uh, to put on thumb drives. So if you can put them on a thumb drive, I'm sure you could probably just yeah. copy them and email them to someone. So, yes, I am saying that <laughs> there are malicious attachments. Uh, you know, file type dot DOTM, I believe, or DOCM. Either way, that means it's a macro-enabled document. That's probably not a resume. Yeah. It might, it might be a resume, but you're probably not going to want to hire this person. 
yeah, that might, that's probably not a resume we want to open and look at, at least not on a normal system. Let's have a, a control around that where we where we segment that off if, if we're worried about it. So, yeah. Right. And, and that's something that we'll definitely talk about a little later as well. But, you know, I wanted to hit on that ownership piece of it. And, you know, similarly, accounting deals with the same problem because instead of getting resumes, they get invoices. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They also so. are dealing with money, so the, the money that they're dealing with is a rich target for the attackers, so they're going to want to go after that information. Exactly. And, you know, with that, granted, it's not part of this control, but that's a reason why you might want to invest in a little additional awareness education for those specific users, especially in the social engineering and phishing arena. Yes. Yeah, you get into that CEO fraud arena where the where I send an email that seems like it came from the CEO to an accountant of some sort, your CFO, and tell them to wire transfer a lot of money and don't tell anybody because we're doing an acquisition and merger and it's critically sensitive. And then that person sends that money and it's not a real request and that money's gone. Or alternatively for, say, Mattel, they're only saving grace as they did it the day before a bank holiday. Yeah. So, so I didn't mean to name drop on that. One, but <laughs> some, someone else already had. So yeah. either way, let, let's go ahead and continue with control number one and stay out of the, the rabbit hole as much as we can. Yeah. So the, the finishing parts of control number one, remember we've collected all the systems that are on our network. We now know about them. We now can authorize them or deauthorize them and use a technology to ensure that they can't get on the network. So we're going to call out 802.1x, which is network level authentication. Sometimes it's called network access control. It's a, that's a similar technology, but slightly different. So we want some form of network level authentication where the workstation, the switch, whichever device it is, actually authenticates to the network and the network says, I know who you are. You have a certificate that I have presented to you. So therefore, I'm going to allow you on the network. And if there's a device like Brian's home computer, I won't be authorized because I'm not an asset of my organization. So that device will either get denied completely complete access to the network, or it will be shunned off to maybe a guest network if we allow that. If we allow internet access for um, home use and or the salesperson that comes in from vendor A, they want to get on the network, we allow that them to get on some kind of network that just has internet access. It doesn't have access to our sensitive data. We can allow that, but we use network level authentication to do that function of pushing them off to this uh, this internet only network. And, and, and that makes perfect sense. And you know, one thing you know, I I know the rabbit hole, but uh, one thing I heard recently, there was an integration between, I believe it was uh, Forescout and Nextpost. Actually, someone had written an integration between the two and. Uh, as vendors or people connected their systems to the network, it would get scanned by Nextpose, and if it didn't meet certain requirements to channel my inner Michael Santarcangelo for a moment, if it wasn't tall enough to ride the ride, it it would send a message over to Forescout to just completely deny them. 
Yep, and so there you're using network-level authentication, but you're adding on those network access control, that NAC, where it's actually interacting with the machine and saying, oh, you've got a virus engine and you're running the updates that I want on your machine, so I'm going to authorize you a little bit further than just on or off. And that's a great great solution. Exactly. That's a little bit uh, advanced for what we're looking at with this specific control, but it's definitely something that's worth looking at. Yep. And that's what we're hinting at, and that's what we want out of this, is some way of ensuring that the devices that are on our network right now are the ones that we expect, and the ones that we don't expect are not on our network. If someone brings in their personal device, if someone puts their phone on the Wi-Fi, it gets denied is what we want to see, or it gets put into that area that's allowed, but it's not, it's not an area that has access to our um, crown jewels or our, our sensitive information. I but it to, should have perfect access to the honeypot and padded cell. There you though. go. Yeah, you can definitely have the honeypot so that we can see if it's an attacker or not. That's no problem. Um, that's a good point. One thing I wanted to call out with this is when we start thinking about how are we going to collect all this information, we're probably, we probably have an active scanner that's doing this. However, one cool passive tool that I want to throw out there that almost everybody has the first device that a, that a network, when you plug into the network, the first thing that talks to you is the switch. And that means that the switch has your MAC address immediately when you connect to the network. And many of our enterprise level switches, we can just ask them to please give me all of your MAC addresses from the CAM table or the MAC address table or the ARP table, whatever you want to call it. We can get those MAC addresses and we can ch check them against our inventory system and learn about devices that get put on our network near immediate or real time because the switches have to interact with the device before it can talk on the network. So it's kind of a cool way of doing it. It would take a little bit of elbow grease to get that information potentially. Some of the bigger vendors do have tools that put it in a database, so then you would just do a database query of some sort. But having those MAC addresses would be a starting point for a passive tool that would gather this information and complement that actual tool. Honestly, uh, MAC addresses are one of the hardest things to actually get using active tools. Yes, because you're going to get the IP address, but the switch is going to hide the MAC address just because MAC addresses are local only. Right, exactly. Yeah. So are you ready to move on to control number two? Yeah, so let's move into control number two. Keep this moving. Control number two sounds a lot like control number one. So control number one was inventory of authorized and unauthorized devices. Now we're going to look at inventory of authorized and unauthorized software. So just like with control one, we want to start devising a list of all the software. We want to scan our systems, find out what software is on there, create a list of naughty and nice, and have exactly what we want on our, on our devices and not have the, the malware and the stuff that we don't want. So the first part of the control, 2.1, is really talking about uh, getting that list of software that's on all of our devices. But then 2.2 jumps right into that prevention side of things where we have a whitelisting solution where we say, the list that I give you is the only list of software you can, you can run. So this, is a, this gets challenging, but there are some, some quick, wins, quick ways to get this to work uh, that I'll talk about in a moment. Now, some people ask the question, 
what software should be on my whitelist and what software should not? And my quick answer is your whitelist can be as long as you want it to be. I'm not trying to limit software that you legitimately use for your organization. What I'm suggesting here is that you come up with a list because even if your list is a thousand products long, it's shorter than the list of malware that's out there in addition to those thousand apps. And we're, we're trying to address that malware side of things and don't allow those um, applications that actually do harm to be on our devices. So we don't really care about what the software is. There's some caveats to that, of course. Um, when we get a little bit more mature, we'll say, well, we don't want to run Office 2003 and 2007 and 2010 and 2013 and 2000. 16 now, we don't want to run every single version of that, so could we bring everybody to one version? It's a conversation you can have, and it's not what this control is trying to do, but it, this control allows you to have those conversations and talk about the different versions of software. We'll get into some of the software that is on the um, slightly naughty list, like the Javas and the Adobe Flashes that we, we may not need anymore and we're start tr starting to try to get rid of. If your organization has a need for those, they're on the whitelist, but then you need to manage them. And we'll start talking about managing them in Control 3 and 4. Um, but it's okay to have those in your list um, as you're building your list because it's still better than all the malware. Exactly. And, and you know, the other thing to take away from the uh, BreakSec podcast, something that Brian Break, uh, Brian with a Y, always has to uh, mention, you all – when, when coming up with your application whitelists, you also, beyond the scope of just saying what applications are whitelisted, you also need to define what directories are whitelisted to run applications. Like, for example, not allowing uh, applications to run in the Windows user space. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great way to so start talking about the implementation of whitelisting, and there's a couple different ways to do it. So you could do it with a straight list of, I allow Word, I allow Excel, I allow whatever, but that list will start getting potentially unmanageable because you have to start thinking about some of the pieces of those. Word is not one file. It's like 300,000 files. And so you have to authorize all 300,000 files because that is Word. Um, so how you manage that gets challenging. And one of the ways that you could do this is assuming you have Control-5 done, which I'll give you a hint, Control-5 is uh, reducing the administrative privileges and controlling administrative privileges. So assuming your users don't have admin on your devices, then you could say that anything in the Windows directory, anything in program files, and anything in program files x86 is automatically authorized. And the reason why it's authorized is because IT had to install it because they had to have admin privileges to do so, and the users don't have admin privileges. So this is a quick way to implement a whitelist, is just to say those three directories. It won't work perfectly, but it's a great starting point. The other right, thing that you can do, go ahead. Um, you know, with that, um, the chat client that we use at my day job, it actually installs into the user space by default. So when we were coming up with our whitelist, we've, we've whitelisted exactly as you said, but when we did that, we actually had to put that on the whitelist, you know, see users, blah, blah, this chat client. Yeah. Uh, just because it had already been deployed to all the machines and 
IT management was uh, against moving it to one of the uh, white-listed directories. Yeah. So that, that brings up an interesting challenge, by the way. Uh, because it's in the user space, that means the user can change the application. If you're whitelisting it by its folder location or its file name, someone could actually put uh, malicious code in its place if, it know, if they know that this chat client is there, and you could have malicious chat client, and it would actually run because your whitelist is specifically saying the file name. So that's where the control starts getting into having some kind of file integrity checking, hashing of these files to make sure they're exactly the file that we expected to be there. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so moving through the rest of this control, we're going to say that you need to have a really robust software inventory tool. It's probably the same tool that is doing your hardware inventory. It just makes it a little easier, um, and, it, and it builds on, it, on itself so that we can use it later. But we're going to want to track all the different pieces of software, all the different versions. And because we have a robust solution there, we'll be able to do some interesting things later where we say, I did see all those versions of Word. Uh, 2003 through 2016, and we're going to identify the people that are on the non-compliant versions, and we're going to go upgrade those machines, and we'll get the, that list of machines that need to have the upgraded version of Word in my example. So, so that's nice to have with that inventory tool. And lastly, in this control, what do we do about applications that we cannot um, authorize or things that are old versions. So for instance, someone says, I got to have XP for this special purpose, but XP is dead. What are we going to do about it? The, the, this control says, air gap those machines. You can do virtualization with some kind of um, VLAN through a firewall DMZ solution or physically air gapping them and removing them from the network. And I do have experience in my current organization and previous organizations that when we got to the time of XP being um, out of date or other software fired that, we did say, you can have your XP machine, but you can have it off the network in that closet over there. And they said, but I need to print. Great, here's a printer to go in the closet with you. It's not a network printer. It's just plugged in directly to your box, and you can have it. And that's actually a great way to give the client exactly what they asked for and making it hard for them so that they try to move off of it, right? Because if you just let them use XP, they'll use it for the rest of their lives or, you know, until it breaks. And this is making it a little bit harder for them. Exactly. I actually met a person who said that they were using Windows XP for a security reason. And he, di he didn't know what I did for a living yet. When he told me, he, he was kind of bragging about it. And, you know, I gave him that look. Everyone yeah. knows what that look is. And uh, he... I started laughing, and he, he asked me what I was laughing about, and I told him what I did for a living, and I was like, I understand that you're trying to accomplish security through obscurity, but the problem is people aren't who – you don't have to worry about people attacking you specifically. It's the malware that's floating out there that's looking for XP uh, devices because just because XP rode off into the sunset and no one really uses it, that doesn't, make, that doesn't mean that the malware that was written for it left the Internet. It's yeah. still there, mm -hmm. and, and and it's easy to have a list of all the per, all the possible vulnerabilities in the world, 
with old software, keeping that list up to date is not that big of a deal. So I can carry around a list of all the 2000, uh, Windows 2000 vulnerabilities just in case, and it doesn't add a lot to my burden. Exactly. As a and, you know, with, with XP and Windows 2000, uh, Server 2003, you know, I would be remiss if we were discussing something like this and didn't mention MSO8067. Yes. Mm-hmm. One of the most infamous ways of pen- penetration testers getting in. Yeah. Both the authorized pen testers and the not quite so authorized pen testers. Yes. Um, the, the malicious style. Uh, the, the, the pen testers that don't charge you anything. <laughs> well, until they ransomware you or something like that. But that's another story. <laughs> Exactly. That's a completely different control. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we will continue our discussion about the Center for Internet Security Critical Security Controls, resuming with Critical Security Control number three and four. Stay tuned. Are you subscribed to this podcast? If not, please do so on iTunes and at advancedpersistentsecurity.net slash podcast. Attention security professionals. Have you been looking for a community of only security experts? Look no further. Peerlist is here. Peerlist helps you stay on top of the news by creating personalized feeds where you get posts from your community and blogs from top industry bloggers, all customized to your specific interests. No more email lists to discuss a topic with other experts. You can invite specific people to any discussion as well as contribute to any discussion on Peerlist. Build your reputation by creating a profile and contributing content that will help others see your expertise. The better your content is, the higher you rank. Peerless never gives your information to any vendor. You are not a lead. You are a professional. Check out Peerlist today at peerlist.com. P-E-E-R-L-Y-S-T dot com. And we're back. So I'm going to use this as a transition point. You know, we had talked about file integrity uh monitoring for for systems that actually ties into control number three the secure configurations for hardware and software yes this is a good segue so now we we did some really good stuff with controls one and two of getting to know what our environment looks like and having a good scope of the problem that we have to fix control two also added probably what i would argue is the most powerful control that we have which is software whitelisting that will all say you're only going to run the programs that are on my list and no no malware that you can come up with is on my list, so therefore you, it won't run, is the concept at least. Um, there are some ways around software whitelisting, uh, and, and if you have to address those, that's great. But if you can get software whitelisting in there, you're going to block probably about 90% of, 90 to 95% of the attacks that are going on right now. So that's pretty awesome in my eyes. So now that we have the list of all the things we have in our environment, now let's start talking about secure configurations for that hardware and software. So we have... Oh, man. Yeah, so we have all of our machines and all of our pieces of software. We need to start talking about coming up with standardized secure configurations of that operating system and secure configurations of the software um, applications that are on those that that operating system. And we can get a lot of that right from the vendor. So Microsoft has a Windows 2 Windows 7, Windows 10, Windows 2008 um, 
security best practice and they tell you this you should turn this setting on it's critical and this setting is really important and this setting's recommended and we want to turn those on and a really good example of a, a configuration issue is the authentication system for windows if you think about how passwords are stored, the old way, a long time ago, late 90s, was Landman or Land Manager. And the way it stored passwords was very insecure in today's standards because it took a password and split it into seven characters each and it encrypted each or hashed each of those um, two pieces. And so that second piece might be really easy to uh, reverse and get the, the that piece of the password, which can help you with the first piece. So Landman was was broken pretty quickly, and so Microsoft came out with the new technology Landman and TLM, and that was way better. But then we found that that wasn't so good, and people started talking about salting passwords, which is a way of making everybody's password hash different than the previous person, even if they have the same password. So Microsoft said, okay, we'll do salting, and we'll call that NTLM v2. So that's the third option. Then the people said, well, that's not the greatest solution. We've got this Kerberos thing. Let's do Kerberos. So there are four choices in a Microsoft environment. and. Unfortunately, Microsoft didn't move the needle for anybody over all the versions of Windows that they've put out. Uh, they, they moved from Landman to NTLM, but then they stuck there. And even Windows 2016, from what I understand, in, installs with NTLM as you build your Active Directory even though Kerberos is the best solution. So that's where we look at this secure configuration. Microsoft will tell us in their baseline and their recommended best practices to turn on Kerberos mode. And so that's an example of one setting out of the myriad of thousand settings that Microsoft would have for us that we want to turn on. And we want to make sure that we do that for each application that we have. And the Center for Internet Security is a source of some of these benchmarks. Uh, it is a pay service, uh, but it's a really good organization. It's a nonprofit, but it's a really good organization to get the information. They have a benchmark tool. It's really cool. Uh, other than that, and you, I was I, if I could chime in really quickly. Um, I was actually going to mention the Center for Internet Security benchmarks as well because uh, a lot of my experience has been in the defense environment, which they don't use the CIS benchmarks. They use uh, security technical implementation guides from DISA, the Defense Information Systems Agency, which are very similar. Uh, in fact, some of them are mirror images of each other. But, you know, those two are both sources. So if you want to get a, a really good benchmark, the Center for Internet Security has uh, theirs. Some are, uh, I know there's a couple that may be free. Uh, I know the benchmarking tool is not free. Um, and then, from the Department of Defense, you can actually go and download their security technical implementation guides on an operating system level and um, deploy those as well. Um, you're kind of limited in terms of what operating systems the Department of Defense employs. Yep. And, um, so for example, when we needed uh, something to tell us how to configure Ubuntu, the closest thing we had was Red Hat. So our choice was either use the Center for Internet Security Guide or transpose the Red Hat uh, Security Technical Implementation Guide, STIG, 
uh, into Ubuntu. So we ended up going with the Center for Internet Security on that one. Yeah, translating from Red Hat to Ubuntu, which is Debian-based, would be a significant change. So that would be not not easy, non-trivial. And basically anything that's mentioning um, uh, SE Linux, uh, basically NA, because SE Linux was co-developed by NSA and Red Hat. Yes, so it's not going to be in that. So, um, Yeah, so so where you get those configuration baselines, there's some, some sources that we talked about. Any of those would be good sources to start from and get some of these con secure configurations. To make it easier, we're going to say use what's called SCAP compliant um, scanners and tools. Uh, and SCAP is a NIST, I think it's still NIST. Actually, NIST, I think, just gave it to the Center for Internet Security, but that's another story. Um, but SCAP is the Secure Content Automation Protocol, and it's basically a way of documenting things like a list of configurations that I want to apply to a system, and I can take that SCAP and put it into my scanning device and have my scanning device verify that my machine has those configurations or not. So CIS's benchmark is a great tool for a one-off. I want to check one server or one workstation, but when you try to deploy it across 10 machines and 100 machines and 1,000 machines, it's manual and you do them one at a time, so it's not scalable. So having a SCAP scanner, which we will use in Control 4 as well, is a really good tool to have to be able to do these checks on the agreed upon security standards and configurations that we're going to apply. We can scan all our systems really quickly and come up with how well they are compliant with those settings that we have. Exactly. And, you know, with, with SCAP, it's also, to go back to the STIGs for a moment, they're one of the same really you can you can you you can import a stig into the scap to assess it against that benchmark as well as the center for internet security because the scap is kind of like the replacement for what was known as gold disk and srr uh, gold disk being for windows the the windows version and srr I, I don't even remember what the the acronym means but it was basically the linux version of scap that you would just put it in and scan it, and it would tell you how well you met the STIGS requirements. Yeah, and that's what we're looking for here. So, so pretty cool tools to be able to do that. Uh, we're then going to shift in this control and start talking about when you build a system. Commonly, our desktop people especially, and most of our server people that use some kind of virtualization, will have a gold image of their systems, or maybe a few different gold images. Uh, where you need to reinstall a workstation, you just put the gold image on it. You don't think about getting out the Windows CD and sticking it in and applying all the patches. You just go straight to that gold image. And so we're saying here, we want to make sure we have those gold images, our master images, securely configured. So we want to make sure they have these settings. But we also want to do integrity checking again against the files that are on the system and as the master image as a whole. A lot of times the master image becomes an ISO file or a, a special type of single file with all the operating systems sitting in it. Uh, we want to do a hash on that to be able to prove that each time we use it, it's the exact same one that we expected to use 
um, and it hasn't been tampered with before we roll it out. That's going to be very important. And we want to make sure that when we're storing it securely, we're going to want a, a version of it air-gapped so that there's no way that an attacker can change the gold image, change the signature for it, and we don't even know that they changed that. We want to have that offline version. Exactly. And another thing to go along with, with golden images, you also need to update them periodically. So uh, I know some organizations require uh, quarterly updates of their golden image. And, you know, it, quarterly may not be the best answer, but doing it periodically is definitely the right answer. Yes. Yeah, you want some kind of period with it because otherwise it takes a really long time to update that machine and that whole time that you're updating it, it is vulnerable to all those um, issues that came out between when you last updated it now. So that's very important. Yeah. Um, so by the way, with that, our the, our virtualization team at my, at my organization actually built a tool that our patching system automatically knows how to spin up the gold image, patch it, and spin it down, and then we have to manually do our hashing afterwards, but at least we get the updates with our normal patching process that we apply to all our live systems. So that's kind of nice. Uh, that definitely sounds like it saves a lot of time, effort, and headache. Yeah, and, and gives us an assurance that we're getting those patches. So. Uh, moving on with the control, there, we're going to say that we want all ad remote administration of servers, workstation, whatever devices, network devices. We want to make sure that we're doing that uh, administration over secure channels. One, because we're sending a password over there and that password has administrative rights, but also because the data may be sensitive that we're transferring back and forth. So we want to choose secure channels in that administration and shy away from Telnet and even think about whether VNC and RDP are secure or not. Are they using encryption? And the answer is maybe. So maybe we don't want to be using VNC or RDP unless we have a secure configuration for it. So for RDP, we want to choose network level authentication, which is a setting inside of RDP, which actually does share or does use a certificate that, that's stored in Active Directory uh, for each of its servers when it connects to them. So you want to make sure that that's, that's built. And then otherwise, make sure that you're using some kind of TLS tunnel or VPN tunnel whenever doing that kind of administration if you had to use something like Telnet because it's an old system. Put a wrapper around it so that it is still encrypted across the network. What else? Uh, we're going to say that we want to do file integrity on our on our systems to make sure that the critical system files don't change. Uh, we're going to make sure that we have configuration monitoring systems. I mentioned that STAP compliant scanner. Uh, if you're for Windows, group policy will apply a lot of our security settings, and it will enforce them. But having the SCAP scanner come in behind the scenes and scan is still useful because there's always the possibility that a machine got put into a place temporarily where the group policy doesn't apply to it, and that could be a very concerning thing. And the SCAP compliant scanner will scan for those settings and tell you that machine over there that isn't compliant, and it was yesterday. And then someone can track down the reason for that and, and remediate it. And another thing to assess with this, 
Um, and, and it's going to tie directly into control number four. But especially when you're talking about group policy and group policy updates, when you find a machine that is not compliant with group policy, you, you need to investigate why. And this kind of ties in with, like, say, WSUS um, or SCCM. When, when machines are failing, you need to understand why. And the answer might be you need to re-image it, but the answer might be that the user is doing something nefarious or there's malware or there's something else. So it's worth investigating why group policy is not applying to a machine or why it is all of a sudden unapplied. Yeah. So we want to make sure we have that, that management station that's doing the configurations. Group policy is our Windows solution. FCCM gives us a little bit more power to that group policy. On Unix systems, um, and even on Windows systems, you can use uh, a solution from Puppet Labs. They have a solution that will put both enforce change and apply changes to a number of systems. So it's pretty a pretty cool solution. And there's another solution called Chef that I'm not familiar with, but it, but it um, handles both the Windows side and on the, on the Unix side as well. So there's some options for those people that say, well, it's great that you talk about group policy, but I don't have that because I'm only a Unix shop or I'm only a uh, Mac OS shop. There are some solutions out there for those kinds of things. And Puppet Labs would work. Exactly. I mean, using the we're a Linux or Mac only shop or we don't run a domain, that's that's kind of a cop out because in this day and age, if you dream it, there's probably already a tool for it. Yes, yeah, there's probably tools that'll do these things, especially things like configuration management. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. So, so let's move on into vulnerability assessment and remediation, which is kind of uh, a sore spot for me. Um, I'm I, I like to consider myself rather heavy in vulnerability uh, remediation specifically. So, you know, to, to carry that on a little bit, you know, in your vulnerability scans, you can, we, we've already said you can integrate that with SCAP. Um, I know that my vulnerability scanner that I use on a daily basis can do it, but uh, that doesn't necessarily mean all the others can. Yeah. You know. So SCAP compliance is something that they actually have to register for. We, we highly recommend you use a product that is uh, tested against SCAP and is compliant. However, we, we really just want a tool that will take an SCAP file and do a scan against it. So most of the vendors can do this, and that's a great solution. So you can use it for Control 3, and you can use it for Control 4 for doing vulnerability assessments. So Control 4, we're looking at vulnerabilities, not configuration problems, but actual software vulnerabilities that need a patch or um, need, a, need to um, have a change to the software. And the same tool is, is very likely to be used. There is a concept of a vulnerability assessment and vulnerability management. And I'm going to say the difference between those is a vulnerability assessment is a one-off. You're going to do a, a scan. You're going to get a report. You're going to show somebody the report, and they're going to do something about it, hopefully. Um, where vulnerability management is where we start taking that information and keeping it over time so that we can compare today's scan to yesterday's scan to last year's scan and start doing trends. In addition, the management is going to start ranking the vulnerabilities for ourselves. Most vulnerabilities have their own ranking, 
where the the internet has decided that this is a level seven out of ten, so it's kind of bad. Um, you should probably patch it pretty quickly. This one's a three, so it's not so bad, and you can you might patch it a little bit slower. Uh, but you have those levels, we can start to manage those levels for ourselves and come up with custom rules of how we patch things. We're going to patch all the critical vulnerabilities extremely quickly, the high vulnerabilities um, almost as quickly, and the low vulnerabilities we might not patch as quickly, but we do need to look at them and see if 10 low vulnerabilities add up to a median and three mediums add up to a critical, that's something we have to start thinking about, even remediating those medium and low vulnerabilities. Exactly. And you need to look at, you know, chaining, uh, chaining sequences because you could easily take, say, three or four lows or mediums and be able to pull off the local privilege escalation or get root somehow yeah. uh, just pulling two or three in sequence. Yeah. So, so, I mean, Poodle was a big deal, and it was only considered a medium by most vulnerability scanner standards. That's correct. Um, and there was just a recent, uh, not version 10 of iPhone, iOS, uh, but 9.3.4, I think, was because there yes. was an attack against, um, there was a, a company that was building this attack, and it actually leveraged three different vulnerabilities to be able to get root on the phone. And so it had to do one and then do two and then do three. Well, if we determine that all of those are mediums, that still means that we get an owned iPhone, a, a rooted iPhone in the end, and that's not what we want in our organization. Exactly. And, you know, with that, the target, granted, he, he, had, he was a political dissident, and he had a nation against him. Yeah. So basically, the, the perpetrator of the attack was a nation, and they purchased it from another nation, which granted, you know, that does hit the take-a-drink nation-state level, but nonetheless, that's, that's a great proof of concept in the regard that it can happen. Yes. So, all right. So we're, we've scanned for our vulnerabilities, and now we want to make sure we're patching, of course, against those vulnerabilities. Uh, and remediating them in any way that we uh, can. Uh, we want to make sure that our scans for vulnerabilities are authenticated, meaning they have full access to the system where they can dig really deeply to try to find all the pieces of software that are installed and give you a really comprehensive look. There's a, there are some um, schools of thought that say, oh, well, only, the bad guys only can see unauthenticated scan data, so therefore we only need to scan at the same level for them. And we're saying that's not very responsible. We don't get as much information um, from that type of a scan, so we'd rather do that fully authenticated scan so we get the most information and we can make the best decision on how to remediate these kinds of problems. That's exactly. Kind of and, and, and it's a little bit arrogant to say that the attackers are going to run unauthenticated scans. That's, that's saying, oh, they'll never get a domain admin or a root-level password. That's not necessarily the case. Um, and the other thing that I want to mention with this uh, while discussing unauthenticated vulnerability scans, what are your thoughts on running authenticated vulnerability scans against Linux and Unix platforms? I'm all for it. So we, we, uh, we run our full authenticated scans against our Unix systems. Um, to ensure that we know all of the different types of vulnerabilities that exist in there. Okay, so have you ever seen it break anything? 
I have seen some scans break some things, but typically the things that get broken are pieces of software that are not written very well. So there's some IoT devices um, that are really SCADA devices but that we've knocked over. We've knocked over, uh, and this is in history of 10 years, right? This isn't just yesterday's scan, knock some stuff over. But I have, and so most of these things have been remediated, uh, but we have seen specific pieces of software uh, on servers get into a hang cycle where they, where they continually process because of the scan. It's pretty rare, and our take on it is the software is obviously broken if a simple scan can knock it over. And one caveat for us is that we do uncheck the denial of service scans. So we don't do the really malicious scans. We're only doing the really good idea scans that have been known to knock, not knock things over, so been able to run without breaking things. Those are the scans that we run. Every once in a while they do break things, but we, we go back to those owners and say, your stuff is broken. We can temporarily scale back this scan, but we need a solution that's a permanent solution for this so that we can run our scans. Okay, and with that being said, have you ever seen a vulnerability scan knock over a Windows uh, device? Oh, yeah. Uh -huh. Okay, so it's, it's not exclusive to the Unix environment. So oh, no. in your professional opinion, would you say that the, um, the you cannot scan this Linux or Unix box uh, using authenticated credentials because it will break everything is a myth that needs to be flushed down the toilet? Absolutely. And while flushing, you can do some small tasks and then grow it. But in the, the reality is that if a scanner can break your stuff, then it's because your stuff is broken and you need to fix your stuff. Exactly. And I've, I've tried selling this to various groups of management in my various positions. Uh, because I've heard that uh, we can't do it, the vulner whatever scanner it is will break it. It's like, okay, so where do I need to put a formal statement on the internet so any possible attackers can read it so they know not to scan this? Yeah, that's what I thought. <laughs> yeah, so um, that is definitely the philosophy. And then when talking to management, you just have to. You know, be gentle with it, be be understanding, and try to bring it into that business sense that, hey, yes, my scan is knocking your stuff over, but that's an indication that it could knock over any time. And as we talked about with the Christmas season and all the e-commerce happening, if that's your business line, is that when you want it to get knocked over? Because that's the most likely time it'll be knocked over, and it won't be my scan because you told me to turn it off but something else will knock it over in the middle of our, um, our what is it called, uh, Black Thursday or whatever it is, Black Friday. You know, right in the middle of Black Friday, we're going to get a, a denial of service because we got too many hits because of the vulnerability that you're letting sit on that device. Right, and the fact that they're having uh, a ridiculously awesome sale on one mm -hmm. item that's limited to, like, the first 15 people. Exactly, yeah. So, 
So that's, that's a conversation, and it is not an easy conversation, especially for technical people that want to just say black and white, you know, you have to patch everything and you have to scan everything, and there's no excuse not to. You have to have some, some give and take and say, hey, what can we do? Can we put it in a test environment? Can we do it slowly? Can we do it once a month? Can we build um, confidence that this isn't going to knock your stuff over every time it runs? Exactly. And, you know, to any security professionals that's about to have this conversation, you know, be prepared to be told no. You're going to be told no several times. That doesn't mean that you should cease the conversation. That just means that you need to find another approach. Yeah. And at later points in these controls, there may be opportunities for you to tell outside entities, hey, this is a uh, something I have in terms of a significant concern. Maybe you should take a look at it while you're doing what you're doing. Yeah. So, so finishing out control four, we're saying we want you to scan for vulnerabilities. We want to patch the vulnerabilities that you find in a prioritized order for yourself. We want you to risk rank your vulnerabilities for your organization, which might be the standard one from the Internet that everybody else is saying, or it may be tweaked a little bit because you recognize that those systems over there are critical and mediums are more important on those, so we're going to shift them up to highs. And then we want to keep track of our vulnerabilities over time and have, be able to give uh, history so that we can see whether we're doing better or worse since uh, last year this time or last month this time. Uh, and by the way, something I skipped over, our vulnerability scanning system is going to need to get a feed of the latest and greatest vulnerabilities, and that might come in daily or weekly. You want to make sure you're getting that feed. Any of the major products for this, you're going to get that from the vendor, but you do need to pay for it. And by the way, we are talking about scanning every device on our network not just the critical um, systems, the DMZ systems, the Internet-facing systems. We're talking about everything, your workstation, my workstation, the smart TV that's in the conference room, the cameras that are on the secure floor. We want to scan all those devices and patch them. Exactly. And, you know, I'm, I've kind of scrolled down a little bit through control number four, and there's a couple of things in version 6.1 that I find a um, special interest, specifically 4.4, which talks about the vulnerability intelligence services, which to some degree I agree that the feeds, you know, the, the monthly feed would be, or the periodic feed would be sufficient, but at the same time, you know, take a drink. What about threat intelligence, right? Uh, what role does that play, and when will it eventually be integrated with vulnerability management systems. And then, you know, with the other part of it, with like 4.6, you're talking about correlation of your log data. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So which we want to make sure that the scans that we see on our network are actually coming from the scan servers that we have and not from malicious person scanner or curious uh, marketing guy scanner. You want to actually get the, those scans should only be coming from our devices that are authorized. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I think that, that covers most of uh, Control 4. Control 5 is our final and what's called the, um, the critical or the cyber hygiene controls, and the sweet spot is what they're called in the Australian Signals Directorate Top 35. 
so control five is controlled access, sorry, controlled use of administrative privileges. So hopefully most of us have done this on our workstations, but we're going to extend it a little bit more. We want to minimize our administrative privileges and only use administrative accounts when they're required, meaning no users have direct admin as their normal user. So I have a Brian account and I log in as Brian. Brian has no rights except for read my email and surf the net and go to the file share that I'm authorized to go to for my department, things like that, those normal user behaviors. And then if I need administrative privilege because I'm in information security and I need to go run that vulnerability management system, I have an, a, an administrator account that can run the vulnerability management system, my normal Brian user can't do it, my Brian the admin user can do it, and I never log into my workstation as Brian the admin because that gives me too many rights if I have admin privileges on that workstation. Um, same thing with domain admins. They have a normal user that they use every day for their normal use, and they have the domain admin account that they use when they have to administer the domain. So you're saying that senior management or just users in general should not have local admin, domain admin, or any other administrative rights just because uh, IT management is lazy and doesn't want to elevate their own account or because senior management says that they need it. Yeah, correct. That's what we're saying. Now, there's always going to be exceptions. Uh, so there's the possibility that, hey, I'm in IT, I often download new developer tools, uh, so I need to be able to install software on my workstation. Um, if you allow that as an exception, that's okay, but we don't want the Brian user to be able to install software, so I have Brian the admin that can install software on my workstation. I never log in as Brian the admin. I only log in as Brian, and then when I want to install software, I have to do the run as administrator, and it will elevate, and it will say, give me a credential, and I type in Brian the admin with my super secret password, and then I can install the software. And then we can also now check the logs to make sure that Brian the admin never logs into the box, that he only runs event items that correspond to installing software and doing some configuration change that's, that's special, but not any logins or log offs. Precisely. Um, you know, I work in an environment that has a lot of developers, and I've heard a lot of wild things from developers. The whole, I'm a developer, I need admin access because I'm a developer. It's like, no, segregation of duties. Um, I've had a developer say that our 15-character minimum password was too hard. It's like, you can write code in four languages, but you cannot remember a 15-character password. Get out of here. Yeah. But we also have a user that has to download updates for some systems that are not directly accessible on the network. They're on our other type of network. And, you know, that person does have local or um, an administrative account so that they can perform those functions. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that was by exception, not by uh, just generality. And he had to complete all the other requirements and sign the same agreements and do the same training that the rest of the privileged users had to do. Yeah, definitely. So, 
in addition with this, we're going to talk about those network level admin functions, so domain admin. We want to reduce the number of domain admins. I listened to a podcast from a Microsoft master called Sean Metcalf, and they asked him this question, and I had the right answer, I thought. And my answer is that any organization should basically have two people in domain admin, one that does the job all the time and one that's the backup for that person. And maybe they go through the job, but they only use that because they administer the domain. And the desktop admins and the server admins, they have special groups that can do just the function that they need. And your account admins might be on the help desk, but they can administer accounts, change passwords, set up a new user, things like that. So I thought I had the right answer. And it turned out that his answer was a little bit different than mine for the correct number of domain admins. His answer was zero, which was very surprising and eye-opening to me. And I highly recommend you go look up his, he, he's written it up, he's talked about it, Sean Metcalf and adsecurity.org, I think is his website. Um, but his explanation is there's a local administrators group on the domain controllers and if you're in the local administrators group of the domain controller, you have the ability to administer the domain, but you have no rights on any other computer. And that's exactly what domain admin's supposed to mean, right? They can administer the domain, but they can't administer all the machines necessarily. The people that administer the machines could be called desktop admins or server admins or something like that. So that was a really right. eye-opening thing, and it's an example of where we can reduce these administrative accounts and get rid of everybody having too much access. Exactly, and I think I, rem I, I, think I recall hearing that exact podcast. I believe it was Security Weekly. That It was either Security Weekly or Trusted Security that he, that he had that conversation. Yeah, and I'm going to say I, Security I Weekly because I'm pretty sure that that is true. Uh, so that was very eye-opening when they, when they said that, and I actually had to save that one and listen to it a couple more times because I couldn't believe it. So, but that's an awesome answer. So really think about where you can reduce the amount of administrative access and separate it from normal functions because when people go to their email, when people go to the Internet, that's the most common place where they get attacked. And, get, and that's where malware comes in. So why would we have our admins doing those functions? Instead, let normal users do those functions with their limited access. And when the admins are there, don't let them run an email client. Don't let them run a web browser. If they need to check something to see how to set the setting and fix the problem, they have to do that on a different machine or, or you know, maybe they remote it into the server. They can close their remote session or minimize it, Look, use, run something locally on their workstation as their normal user, and then copy and paste the answer or just type in the answer to the actual server as the admin user. That's the kind of thing we're, we're thinking about in this control. Exactly. And, you know, keeping the conversation moving with this, you know, scanning ahead, it talks about multi-factor authentication, password complexity, such as 14 characters, um, <clears throat> one-time passwords, smart card certificates, biometrics. I'm sure later versions may even talk about password vaults. Um, yeah, they, the, the password vault has stayed out of the critical security controls, but I think that that's something that could easily come because we're also advocating a different password for every account that you have, and how do you manage all of those? So that's definitely something that could be coming. Exactly. I, I think, 
you know, this is conjecture. I have no insider information on it, but I would, what I would like to see is multi-factor authentication, such as something like, say, Google Authenticator or what have you, become more common, generally speaking, but then it be directly integrated into those tools like 1Password, LastPass, KeePass, whatever, yeah. right? Yeah, that would be great. So, yeah, so so this finishes out our cyber hygiene and our critical five controls that, that if you do these, you're going to protect yourself from at least 85% of those attacks out there. And they're really powerful controls. So So those are the ones that everyone should focus on first. And when they have maturity, a reasonable maturity level in those controls, they can then move on. And when you're looking at the actual controls that you've downloaded or gotten from uh, CIS website, uh, you'll see that as you move up in the, in the sub-controls that we've been talking about, they do get more complex, and so they're higher levels of maturity. So, so that's kind of the concept that we have here. Sit tight. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, Brian will say goodbye for this episode. Stay tuned. Don't forget to check out our blog at advancedpersistentsecurity.net slash blog. Follow us on Twitter at advpersistentsec and follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash advancedpersistentsecurity. O'Reilly Media is launching their inaugural security conference in New York from October 31st until November 2nd. With their first European event shortly after in Amsterdam from 9 to 11 November to provide InfoSec practitioners with pragmatic tools, techniques, and know-how for building better defenses. Register today and save 20% on gold, silver, and bronze passes with discount code APS20. That is APS20. Plus, take advantage of the buy one, get one offer for the O'Reilly Security Conference. Simply purchase a pass and then request a unique code to get a pass for a colleague. Learn more at O'ReillySecurityCon.com. So, we've talked about the Center for Internet Security and formerly SANS Top 20 Critical Security Controls. With that being said, you know, we went over the first five in great detail. We skimmed over the remainder of them, and um, it was honestly three hours of greatness in terms of recording it. So it's definitely been fun. I'm going to give uh, the floor exclusively to Brian uh, in this time. Give us shameless plugs for you, all of your projects, your SANS courses. Tell us how to follow you on Twitter, how to contact you, whatever you want, if you want to be contacted. All right. Well, um, my name is Brian Ventura, just in case we forgot. And uh, I do I do teach for SANS. So the SANS website has their instructor section, and you can look me up at sam.org slash instructors slash brian dash ventura and that'll be in the show notes that'll show where i'm teaching next and again my two next classes are in february i have the pittsburgh's sec 440 which is a two-day course i believe that's february 1st and 2nd and then i have february 6th through whatever it's the next week it's a full week uh, and that's SEC 566 in Seattle. Uh, so that one I'll actually be driving to. I have uh, most of these I fly to. Uh, but I'll be teaching those two courses. They're both the critical security controls. They take a different spin on them as far as the two-day course, of course, is just getting the, the basics. 
And then the five-day course is really how to implement and how to audit and really understand the controls at a deep level. We'll go over tools. We'll go over a lot of a lot more details than what I've done here, of course, because I've only spent three hours, which was you know a lot of time, but it's but it's not five days. Um, so I have those two courses coming up. In addition, I'll be doing a similar to this podcast, three and a half hour training locally in Portland. And that is November 2nd and through OWASP. We're having an OWASP training day and they have three really technical, awesome people doing some really technical stuff. And then they have me doing the controls. So I'm, a, I'm the odd one because I'm not doing highly technical penetration testing type things. Uh, but it is a really good training day if you're in the Portland, Oregon area. It's November 2nd, and you can look it up through OWASP Portland, which I believe it's OWASP PDX, or it might be, I don't know. But anyways, you can find it by looking up OWASP Portland, and uh, you'll find that training day. The registration actually went live today, so um, it's an exciting time for that. And Otherwise, the reason why my next SANS course is in February is because I'm actually teaching a local course in Portland for the CISSP prep, I want, I'm, I volunteer through ISSA and I'm the director of education and I wanted to have something local for people to get to. And so that's why the OWASP training day, but that's also why, uh, myself and our past president are co-teaching a CISSP course. We're hoping to build enough instructors that we can put it on every year with a different instructor so we don't get burned out. And we're doing it through the local community college, Portland Community College. So it's a really good resource for us to be able to help out the community and, and get people trained up. But uh, the SANS training is, again, in February. That's the big one for me. And uh, I'll be doing it throughout the year. Those are just my first two for the next year. We've done the first quarter. And I'll think past that as soon as they release it, probably in December. Awesome. Um, ways, ways to contact me. I forgot that part. Um, I am on Twitter at Brian with an I. It's Brian, B-R-I-A-N-W-I-F-A-N-E-Y-E. Um, I have a, I had a past boss that was Brian with a Y. And so someone put on my cube a picture of an I and wrote B-R before it and then A-N after it. And that's kind of become something that I associate with, Brian with an I. Uh, and then you can email me at water at bighead.org. That's my actual email address. I do respond to emails and talk to different people about how they're doing with the critical security controls. I also work heavily with the NIST cybersecurity framework, so I talk to people about that. But I'm really interested in, in basically raising education for a lot of different people focused on information security because that's what I do, but I'll talk to people about anything. And I think, uh, I, I know I'm the same way, and I think that's why this recording was uh, three hours. Yeah. Um, so, because when you have like-minded people who um, resonate with each other, you, you have those long discussions. So, um, absolutely nothing wrong with that in the least. Um so uh, do you have anything uh, else you'd like to say? No, I think that's it. Thanks for giving me the opportunity. It was great talking to you, and I think that we did a good job of, of counterplaying the, each of the controls, giving a different perspective on it, different uh, stories, and the stories always make it very uh, much more palatable and easy to understand for, for people that are listening. 
Exactly. Um, you know, people remember the stories more than the definitions. So uh, with that being said, uh, until next time, stay secure. I've been Joe Gray. Thank you for listening to the Advanced Persistent Security Podcast. Until next time, stay secure and don't forget to subscribe to this podcast.